0: From the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins.
1: Well, good afternoon. Hope you've had a fantastic week. Welcome to this Friday edition of Washington Watch. I'm Jody Heiss, your Friday host and Senior Vice President here at the Family Research Council. Glad to have you part of our audience today in more ways than one because we are all engaged together in making a difference in moving the needle. Let me give you the rundown of some of the issues we'll be looking at today. As Senate border negotiations literally are stalling, we have a Texas sized standoff that is continuing on the southern border as Texas Governor Greg Abbott is doubling down on blocking what he decreed is an invasion of his state that's enabled by the Biden administration. I guarantee you. He's going to stand strong. He'll keep putting razor wire up. We'll keep blocking the border. We'll keep doing everything that we need to do to protect our state, despite the fact that this ruling, the Supreme Court ruling, was so wrong and has such a detrimental effect on our state and our country. Wow, that was Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton last night on the Hannity Show. Well, now there are 25 other state governors that have pledged their support as well. We'll be talking here in just a few moments on the latest on this development with Texas Congressman Randy Weber. And then we have some good news coming out of Maine where lawmakers there have rejected legislation to turn their state into a sanctuary state for teens with gender confusion. There are
2: certain lines that I think need to be respected as far as uh the authority of the family versus the authority of the state. I feel like this legislation takes a great leap over that line uh, with the potentially empowering the state to even take custody of, of minors in a way that does not, does not feel uh,
3: appropriate to me.
1: It's a huge story. Uh, That was Maine Senator Eric Brakey speaking last night, right before the 12 to nothing vote and Maine State Representative Jennifer Poirier, who was on the committee that stopped that bill, will be joining me a little bit later in the program. And then continuing our weekly discussion about election integrity efforts, Jason Sneed from Honest Election will be joining me to share details on his new report titled Safeguarding Elections, Critical Reforms to Secure Voter Integrity, and rebuild confidence in American elections. You don't want to miss that. And then finally, they are being called religious nuns. That's N-O-N-E-S. These are Americans who say they don't identify with any religion. And according to the Pew Research Center, their numbers actually fell in 2023. Uh, Nahal Segal, the vice president at the Pew Research Center, will be joining me to unpack the research on this trend. And then David Claussen, director of the Center for Biblical Worldview at the Family Research Council, will explain how the church can reach these religious nuns and bring them into fellowship with believers. Uh, so we've got a lot to uncover. We'll get to it here in just a few moments. But before we do that, let me just remind you, uh, and this is what I referenced earlier in the program, that we're all in this together. Uh, we here at FRC, of course, are urging Congressional House leadership to use every tool available to leverage uh, in order to stop the flow of illegal immigrants, drugs, human trafficking, and all the other things that are c- taking place across our southern border. And you can do the same. You can help us by visiting frcaction.org border or simply text the word BORDER to 67742. Look, we're all in this. This is time for all of us to let our voices be heard. Again, visit frcaction.org slash border, or simply text the word BORDER to 67742. All right, the biggest story being discussed in Washington, D.C. today actually is taking place in Texas where Governor Greg Abbott's refusal to back down on the Biden administration's continued push for open borders has now drawn support from at least 25 other governors who released a joint statement of solidarity with Texas. Now, keep in mind, all of this is coming as Senate negotiations for, the, for border security legislation continues to deteriorate. So all of this put together is raising questions as to where is all this standoff headed well joining me now from the lone star state to discuss this is congressman randy weber he's a member of the house freedom caucus and the energy and commerce committee dear friend randy thank you thank you for joining us on washington watch great to see you again thanks very glad to be here all right, so uh, tell me what you think. Texas Governor Greg Abbott's not backing down, and now we have uh, 25 other governors who say, are saying they uh, have his back. Uh, give me your thoughts on this latest development.
4: Well, good question, Joe. You know, people are saying that Joe Biden has not been very successful. you got to admit, he's successful on dividing the country over in, more than half of the 26 states. Actually, Texas and the 25 that's supporting if I've got the numbers right, Uh, It's unbelievable what's going on down the border. We were just down there, Michael McCall, Foreign Affairs Committee chairman, and myself and some others. uh, About four or five days ago, we went on to Mexico City to meet with the president and some of his cabinet members. You go down there, Jody, it's worse than ever before, and it's all Joe Biden's fault. And he's trying to deny that. If you watch what's going on in the news, Kamala Harris, Biden and others, are saying this is about Republicans trying to make it a campaign issue because it's getting close to election? Well, that's poppycock because he's been there three and a half years almost, and he's had a chance to secure the border and he's brought it. He's broken it wide over the open than anybody else. He wants illegals here. It's just that simple.
1: It is just that simple, and he actually has made this a campaign issue. It is yeah. now the number one issue on the hearts and minds of Americans across the country. And as you say, it's totally uh, Biden's fault. Now, let me just, uh, here, here's the other part of this. And having been a, a, a former member of Congress working through this stuff like you, the House passed some good legislation months ago, HR2. You have got to be sitting here at this point, a Congressman, thinking somehow we have the solution we have passed the solution in the House if only Chuck Schumer and the Democrats and the Senate would take action on it. Uh, give me your thoughts. Is anything going to happen with HR2?
4: Well, absolutely. We like to say that you know the Democrats are the opposition, but the Senate is the enemy. And HR2 had four, four very main points that if, if they, were, they would have simply taken it up and passed it, we' would have been in a lot better shape. Number one, stop catch release, uh, stop the uh, parole thing they were doing reinstitute, reinstitute the remain in mexico policy and then of course build the wall but the truth of the matter is the democrats don't want to stop the immigration they they say we want it as a campaign issue but look let me jump over to the supreme court the supreme court ruled, in my opinion five to four ruled erroneously once again they got it wrong no shock there And I'm going to bring up something, and Abbott was right when he said Texas, in his press release, Texas has the right to defend itself. But I'm going to go a little deeper than that. Think with me. When the founders of this country, who absolutely put at risk their lives or fortunes and their sacred honor by signing that document, they knew, they absolutely knew that they were forming a country. Now, think about this, Jody. The federal government didn't form the colonies in the states. The colonies in the states formed the federal government. And to them, Tenth Amendment, all the rights remain to the people. That's not enumerated in the states. That's not enumerated in the Constitution. Why doesn't the the learned Supreme Court get that? I don't understand.
1: Excellent point. I mean, that is the reality of how the these great United States came together, and from those United States, a federal government was developed. Uh, an excellent point and. Why they don't get it, I don't know. Let me, let me hit from this angle with you as it relates to the southern border. Those over in the Senate, and I mentioned this a few moments ago, but those in the Senate who are handling negotiations for a, a border deal, they seem to have kept this whole thing very close to the chest. Uh, they've not let a great deal of information out. Have you members of the House received any updates as to what's happening over there?
4: You know, I certainly have not. Uh, And even Chairman McCall, when we were down in Mexico, uh, he did not indicate that he had. And I kind of took my comments in meeting with the Mexican officials that uh, we really don't know what the Senate's doing. I don't know how much longer they're going to wait. We're running out of time. I'm glad Texas, thank God for for Governor Abbott. I'm glad they're standing their ground. I almost, for Joe Biden to want to nationalize the Texas Guard I mean, how scary is that? I almost think that the governor should tell them, look, nothing personal against y'all, but if y'all come in here, this is Texas property, Texas land. We put stuff on the river to secure uh, against those foreign invaders. We own that product, whether it's wire, whether it's balloon barriers or whatever it is. And if y'all put your hands on that stuff, you're stealing Texas property, we will put you in jail.
1: Yeah. Well, we're thrilled with what you're doing, too. I do want to switch topics, but before I do, I, I know... Congressman, you hear from your constituents daily, uh, and as we talked about a few moments ago, the the border issue has become the number one policy issue for the public. What are you hearing from voters in your district?
4: Well, it's border, obviously. It's inflation, uh, obviously. Uh, It's the lack of of a president at the helm, if you will, who's cohesive, who is cognitive, who is able to do things. The the question really becomes who's actually running the show. Uh, We hear that. We hear that the funding for Ukraine, we should be funding our own borders. You know, when we were on the border, uh, we talked to CBP CBPA official that have been there 27 years, and he made an interesting comment. He said, we don't, they talk about money and all this kind of stuff. He said, this, all this flows like a huge fire hydrant. And he said, we don't need more buckets to catch the water from the fire hydrant. We need the fire hydrant shut down. And that's what my constituents are saying. we need the borders shut down We need to not give money to Ukraine until we've dealt with our own border now on the other side of that Israel we're a very very conservative district. We love Israel, and we would like to see the bill pass out to get Israel taken care of that, That's the main things we're hearing
1: well let me let me uh just segue into that now that you've mentioned it. you're the co chair of the House bipartisan Task Force on combating anti-Semitism, and the United Nations International Court of Justice has ruled, in fact, just today that Israel needs to take measures to prevent genocide in Gaza, but it stopped short of ordering the immediate ceasefire in their war with Hamas. What's your take on that real quickly? We've got about a minute or so left.
4: Yeah, well, here's the thing. I'm a Texan. You know, you know how conservative we are, border with Mexico, two-thirds of the United borders with us. So think about this, if we were, if Texas was getting, choose a number of 10 rockets a day, 20 rockets a day, or 60 or 70 rockets a day from down in Mexico, how long do you think it would take for us to be down there in full force? I mean, it would take about well, one or two, three days at the most, you know? Israel has the right to defend itself. And I want to postulate this unless they eradicate Hamas entirely and completely, it's going to be that little, like that little girl in the movie, Poltergeist, remember? She used to come to the screen and say, they're back. Hamas will never go away unless they they cut off the head of the snake, and that's what they've got to do and and get them all.
1: Well, absolutely. Israel has the right to defend themselves, and I would just say with an exclamation point, so does Texas. Thank you for your leadership in all of this, Congressman Weber, and thank you for joining us on Washington Watch. All right, friends, we've got much more to cover, And, and, and it is interesting in all of this. Uh, As it relates to Israel, let me just say this. The Biden administration, I think, ultimately wants Israel to wrap up its elimination of Hamas because uh, the ongoing war hurts the president with votes from the left. Uh, This has become a political issue for him, and that's why I believe he's pushing Israel at this point. All right. Again, thank you, Congressman Weber from Texas. Uh, Friends, coming up, we've got some good news coming out of Maine. You don't want to miss it. Stay tuned. We'll be right back in just a moment. Welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm your Friday host, Jody Heiss. Thank you so much for joining us today. All right, you may have heard a disturbing story from Maine where some extreme lawmakers sought to turn their state into a sanctuary state for minors seeking gender surgeries. And I want to tell you what this legislation they proposed would actually do. I'm going to say this slowly and carefully. I want this to sink in to you. Democrats introduced legislation in the state of Maine that would allow the state to take custody of children from parents who didn't go along with their child's gender confusion. The bill would also have allowed the state to take in runaway children who travel to Maine for these permanent experimental procedures. Wow. Wow. Well, we've got some good news. The Maine House Judiciary Committee rejected that bill last night by a unanimous vote. And joining me now to discuss this is Maine State Representative Jennifer, Jennifer uh, Poirier. She is a, the ranking member of the House Judiciary Committee and represents the 70th district in the state of Maine. Representative, welcome to Washington Watch. Great job.
6: Thank you for having me, Jody. Good
1: to see you. Well, it's great to see you. I can't tell you how great and thrilled we are to you and all of your colleagues there in Maine for demonstrating a sense of reason last night and putting an end to this bill's path to possible enactment. Uh, Many parents, I'll just say this too, Jennifer, throughout the entire country, join me right now in a big thank you, thank you, thank you. For what you did. All right, so this bill was killed by a unanimous vote. Uh, Was this the outcome that you expected?
6: I can't say that we were expecting the outcome to be unanimous, but we were definitely hoping and praying that it would come this way. Um, Unfortunately, in Maine, we have Democratic leadership in the House, the Senate, and of course our governor. So. They can push through any legislation they want by having the majority, and this was a bill that we very much felt strongly against.
1: All right, so pull back the curtain for us, if you will, a little bit. Uh, There's no doubt that you and other members of the Judiciary Committee uh, had to have some pretty serious discussion and debate about all of this. So if you can, kind of take us back behind the scenes what kind of discussions did y'all have among yourselves when talking about this bill?
6: Sure, Jody uh, First of all, this was a carryover bill. So we started it last session. That's when it had its public hearing. And there were grave concerns from both sides on the bill's contents. Um, one of the major issues was that tied law enforcement's hands. So if a person took any child from any state to Maine for these procedures or drugs uh, for gender or hormone therapy, um, the law enforcement through the bill was forced to not recognize that and make it a low priority. It's lowest priority, in fact, um, which obviously would cause human trafficking of our children. So that was a major, major concern. Um, Also the fact that the bill forced the state of Maine not to recognize other court orders from other states. So these sort of things really put our children in jeopardy and take away parental rights, which, as Republicans, we feel very strongly about keeping those rights.
1: Yeah, I mean, you look at this bill potentially giving the state authority to take custody of children if the parents are, are opposing somehow Uh, this moving forward with gender transition surgeries is just stunning to me i mean that had to have been a frightening scenario for you and others uh in in your discussions with all of this what did you hear from your constituents and the other members of your committee what did they hear was this a big outcry from constituents saying what are you doing here
6: certainly i received so many emails and phone calls from people in my district throughout the state and actually throughout the country, because this was a bill that was put on the national forefront as it should have been. Um, the concerns were that the state was taking people's children and there was nothing anybody could do about it. Um, just the, the, the bill itself had so much wrong with it. I mean, right down to, you know, a child comes from another state, the state of Maine taxpayers would pay for everything. Um, it was just, it was just, it was a horrid bill, just horrible.
1: Well, it really is. I mean, it's, it's gotten the attention of many of us, too, to realize just how horrible it was. So the decision to vote last night, 12 to nothing, is kind of, you know, we look back, people like myself and others look at that vote and say, all right, that was a slam dunk rejection of this bill, but is it really a slam dunk? Is there any way that this thing can resurface or come back later? Or do you feel like enough of a loud statement was made last night that it's going to put an end to this type of thing?
6: Well, Judy, I think that this session, it's over. Obviously, we're coming into election season. So I think Democrats realize that, too, that uh, passing a bill so extreme like this would harm them come November. But I do not doubt uh, that next, next year, I think we'll see similar legislation, maybe not so extreme, but they will continue to push the agenda when it's safe for them to do so.
1: Wow. It's amazing. Uh, just uh, persistent uh, in, in this type of thing over and over. Why, in your opinion, is this such an important issue that must be addressed?
6: Well, I can speak for my side as far as Republicans. We need to address it because it's our children's lives at stake. Um, Parents are their kids' number one advocates, and I firmly believe that having raised seven sons myself. Um, It's up to us as parents, it's up to us as adults to love our children and to teach them to love themselves for who they are, not try to change them which I feel legislation such as this is trying to do, trying to change our children into something they're not, and they're not meant to be.
1: Well, again, I cannot say enough heartfelt thank you to you for taking a stand and your other members on the Judiciary Committee. Uh, you, You stood well. You stood strong. I'm sure there was a lot of opposition in it. But we're deeply grateful. Thank you, Maine State Representative Jennifer Poirier. We appreciate you so much. Thank you for joining us on Washington Watch.
6: Thank you, jetty
1: All right, friends, stay tuned. We've got more Washington Watch after the break. When we come back, we'll be diving rather deeply into a look on the issue of election integrity. Another major issue on the hearts of everyone coming into this election year. So stay tuned. We'll bring it your way in just a moment. And welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm your Friday host, Jody Heiss. Welcome aboard. Glad to have you. All right. As we continue our focus on election integrity in this crucial election year, there's a new report from Honest Elections that details critical reforms that, uh, frankly, many states need to enact in order to better reinforce election integrity. As always, you know, the the ideal is to make it easier to vote while at the same time making it more difficult to cheat. Well, joining me now to discuss this report and the progress that we still need to make for election integrity is Jason Sneed. He's the executive director of Honest Elections. Jason, welcome back to Washington Watch. It's great to be back. Well, it's always an honor to have you, and this is such a critical issue uh, for our entire country, always, but particularly as we're entering into another election year. And you have this new report from Honest Elections. Tell us about the details of it.
2: Well, this is a comprehensive breakdown of the 14 things that we think every state needs to do to make it easier to vote but harder to cheat. And as you said, that's what we always need to be aiming for. This is actually the second iteration of this report that HEP has put out, and it details everything that you would need to do if you want to improve elections for all voters. It's very detailed. And it shows you exactly how to get the job done. This being an election year, I think making sure that we have election processes that are as tight and well-functioning as they can be is an especially high priority. And that's why we wanted to put this out now as state legislatures are convening and debating some of these exact issues.
1: Yeah, and I think it's critical that we put all this out, and I thank you, I commend you for doing so while state legislatures are in session all across the country giving them both an alert, an awareness, if you will, that these are issues that are essential for election integrity. And now that you're in session, this is the time to deal with it. Uh, So if you can, if you could prioritize these, I know know you've got a a number of issues that you've brought to light, but if you could mention uh, one or two or three that you would kind of underscore is absolute essential for uh, legislatures across the country, what would that be?
2: Well, I'm actually going to talk about a couple of issues that most folks wouldn't immediately think of when they think of election integrity. You know, we on the right have been arguing about clean voter rolls and voter ID for so long. That's what most of the time people think of. But we know what those sorts of fights and, frankly, what those policies look like. So one of the things that I've been most excited about with this report is the opportunity to highlight some of the new challenges that we're seeing come from the left to remake voting. So, for instance, the very top item in our report is that every state should ban ranked choice voting. This is an entirely different uh, way to run an election. Instead of voting for a single person in a race, you now rank multiple candidates, you gather up all the ballots, and when you tabulate the results, you run them all through a machine. And if no one gets over 50% of the vote, you start eliminating candidates and redistributing ballots until you manufacture a phony majority. This is a new scheme that is being pushed all across the country. The left is spending tens of millions of dollars on lobbyists and consultants from the right and on ballot measure campaigns. In fact, this year alone, we could see a dozen states face ballot measures in November To bring ranked choice voting to elections in their state, which means this could be the year the left permanently changes the way Americans choose their leaders. But beyond ranked choice voting, we've got to get ahead of the new private election scheme called the U.S. Alliance for Election Excellence. This is a repeat of Zuckbucks from 2020 with a new twist to get around the laws that states have put in place to ban private election funding. It's active in uh, more than a dozen election offices in our country right now, including in places like Missouri and Arizona. We need to get ahead of that with a new round of bans to make sure that we're cutting off not just the flow of money, but the flow of liberal uh, uh, influence and politics into our election offices. And we also need to be looking at the influx of foreign money which the left is addicted to, and they use particularly hundreds of millions of dollars from a Swiss billionaire named Hans-Jörg Wies to push their political agenda, to influence American politics, and to help win ballot measure fights and even candidate races across the country. These are some of the new challenges, and it's all outlined in our report, uh, and I hope that folks will read it to see how to, to stop these, uh, these new incursions against election integrity.
1: Yeah. And before we leave, I'd like for you to uh, share where people can go to see that report. It seems to me that the left is somehow creating a, a false choice, if you will, between voter participation and voter integrity, uh, election integrity. Uh, do you agree with that? I mean, we can have both. We can have great participation and election integrity. These are not mutually exclusive. Oh, absolutely. In fact, if you want people to participate,
2: the easiest way to do that is to show them that we have secure elections. That's why when Georgia passes a law that the left slams as voter suppression and Jim Crow 2.0, you actually see turnout go up and you get presidential level uh, turnout in the early voting, despite everything that the left says. The bottom line is that people people want it to be easy to vote, but they also want it to be hard to cheat. So they want accessibility and convenience, but they also want security and confidence in the results of the elections. So the easiest way to get people to turn out is actually the opposite of what the left says. The left says it's all about access and voting should be so convenient it's effortless, but the public wants rules and procedures and safeguards in place to protect their vote and make sure that elections are being chosen by qualified eligible voters so that we can trust those results.
1: Jason Sneed with Honest Elections, how can people get their hands on the report that you have come out with?
2: Uh, please find us uh, online at honestelections.org. Uh, we're also active on X and Facebook at Honest Elections. You can get the report on uh, any of those sites, and we'll be continuing to, uh, to share some new uh, uh, nuggets, particularly on social media, so I hope folks will follow us there.
1: Fantastic. Jason Sneed, thank you for keeping us up to speed on election integrity. All right, friends, coming up, we've got some new data on religious nuns. That's not Catholic nuns, it's N-O-N-E-S, those who have no religious affiliation. We'll break it all down for you right after the break. Stay tuned. We'll be back.
5: Get this free guide at frc.org slash pro to learn more about the important role men play in protecting unborn lives.
1: Welcome back to Washington Watch in this Friday edition of the program. I'm Jody Heiss. Glad to have you on board with us. And don't forget our website, Tonyperkins.com, Lots of great information and resources there that you want to take advantage of, so be sure to visit that website. All right, we have some new data that was released this week from the Pew Research Center, and it indicates the number of Americans who do not identify with any religion fell three points last week. Uh, It fell from 31 to 28%. Now, these individuals are described as religious nuns. That's N-O-N-E-S. Uh, that their religious affiliation is none. Uh, and they comprise a pretty large group of Americans, uh, and more than two thirds of these individuals still believe in the biblical God or some form of a higher p- power. Well, joining me now to break all this down and share with us this data is the vice president of the Pew Research Center, Neha Segal. Neha, thank you for joining us on Washington Watch. Great to have you.
3: Pleasure to be here.
1: All right. So the percentage of Americans who say that they don't identify with any religion fell three points in 2023. Uh, What can our audience, primarily Christian audience, what do we take away from that?
3: I would encourage our audience to take a look at the long-term trend on this, Uh, and not necessarily the year-by-year ups and downs. Uh, If I can draw an analogy, it's survey research is uh, is taking a measurement, not that different from when you weigh yourself every day in the morning, right? And some days you might see your weight is up by a couple points, uh, and a couple, and a day later it's down by a couple points. So the day-by-day measurement is not as important as the long-term trend, which will tell you if you're gaining weight or losing weight or staying the same. So the same thing applies here. Over the course of the last 15 years, we at the Pew Research Center have seen a dramatic rise in the share of Americans who describe themselves as either atheist, agnostic, or having no particular religion. Now, in the last... So- Three to five years or so, we're starting to see that share of the population stabilize, roughly 28%. And the measurement we did before, that was 31%. Could it be, as you're asking, that the share is now starting to decline or is starting to stabilize? We're going to need data for future years to say that definitively, just as you would need more data to know if your weight is stabilizing.
1: Okay, so we're somewhere in the ballpark of 28 to 30% of Americans who have no religious affiliation at all. Of that, 30 percent, whatever it may be, 17 percent of them, as I understand from your report, are atheists. 20 percent or so are agnostic. But the remaining 63 percent, tell us a little bit more about them.
3: Yes, yeah, so this is a group, uh, it's, like you're saying, it's a big group, 63%, and they are saying that they have no particular religion, right, as opposed to the other two who say they're either atheist or that they are agnostic. We find that this particular group, this nothing in particular group, is quite distinctive from the atheists and the agnostics. For one thing, uh, they are less well-educated. Atheists and agnostics tend to be a bit higher educated than I would say the average American. Uh, That's not true for people who are nothing in particular. The other thing we notice about the people uh, in this group is they are less civically engaged. They are less likely to vote. They are less likely to be satisfied with their communities.
1: Very interesting. But on the religious side of things, if we can put it that way, uh, I'm assuming uh, these folks, 63% of the 30%, they have some belief in God, a higher power, whatever uh, they may uh, refer to it as. But they have some spiritual foundation, some spiritual beliefs. Is that correct?
3: that is absolutely correct and i think you you've kind of hit the nail on the head there i think it would be not uh, correct as per the data to call the religious nuns uh non-believers or people who are against religion that's actually not what we find we actually find that the majority of this group does say that they believe in god now they may not necessarily believe in god as described in the bible a very small share of religious nuns do Most of them actually tell us that they believe in some form of higher power. So what we could say is these people tend to show beliefs that are maybe less traditional than than what we would uh, normally expect in the the population of people who describe themselves uh, as Christians. About half of uh, people who describe themselves as religious nuns do say they're spiritual right uh that's definitely not everybody but it's also not nothing right so i think what what we can take away from this is rejecting religion does not necessarily mean rejecting all kinds of belief that we would associate uh with religion or spirituality
1: so in this case what these people basically have done uh as i understand it is they they still have a spiritual religious foundation whatever that may be but they have walked away from the church or whatever other religious group.
3: Yeah, you can see that. Can all, you can see that they don't attend religious services. I mean, that's, 90% of them are saying they seldom attend religious services or they never uh, go to a church, right? So, uh, you know, these people have distinguished themselves in some way, right? Um, and that appears to be that they have rejected kind of traditional beliefs. They don't believe in God as described in the Bible and they do not attend religious services.
1: Okay, Neha, last question here for you. You mentioned that this somehow uh, may, and I want to just real quickly get into this, reflect a broader decline in civic engagement. Is there a relationship here?
3: I think there is. You know, people will often ask me, why is it that... Uh, a growing share of americans say they have no religion uh, and what i would suggest to you all is that, i mean this is part of a larger trend in american society where people seem to be opting out of civic engagement or engaging with traditional institutions at uh, the Pew Research Center, we have found that fewer people say that they're they're following the news closely. We know that Americans are volunteering less than they used to, so it could be part of a larger trend with Americans kind of disengaging or disaffiliating uh, from civic life or uh, you our know, civic institutions uh, or traditional institutions.
1: Thank you same so much also you all with the Pew Research Center, we really appreciate this information and for you taking time to join us. Here on Washington Watch. All right, continuing this discussion on these latest numbers from the Pew Research Center and how we as Christians can reach these unbelievers, these uh, religious nuns, as they're being called, um, reaching them with the love of Christ, knowing that they still have a religious spiritual foundation, is very important. I'm joined now by David Clausen, who is the director of the Center for Biblical Worldview here at FRC. David, always great to see you. Welcome back to Washington Watch.
7: Hey, great to be with you. Thanks for having me, Jody.
1: All right, so let's, uh, I, I'm interested in your picture. Here we got a, a biblical worldview expert here. We have new information from the Pew Research Center. We have these religious nuns, people who have no religious affiliation, but they do still largely have a religious foundation, uh, What does this tell us about these individuals?
7: Yeah, that's a great question, Jody. And I think this survey, as I dove into it earlier today, just kind of reinforced uh, what we're seeing in all sorts of surveys, is that we really live in a post-Christian, religiously confused age. Uh, You and I have discussed the survey that we did uh, a couple of months ago um, with the Center for Biblical Worldview and George Barna that surveyed those who regularly attend church. And uh, it was disheartening to find that so many people who regularly attend church actually hold very few orthodox biblical beliefs. Looking at the the research from Pew, and you kind of dive into the numbers, again, I found this fascinating. I think the, the biggest takeaway for me, Jody, if I'm thinking big picture, is that rejecting organized religion uh, does not necessarily equate uh, with a rejection of God. Uh, you got into this a little bit in the, the prior segment let me give you just a couple statistics that I pulled that I found interesting, is that these are people, uh, again, this is 28% of the population, it was 31% last year, uh, so about a third of Americans who say that they are religiously unaffiliated, atheist, agnostic, or nothing in particular, so they're, they don't go to church, only 3% of them go to church, so they don't go to church, they don't claim any religious label or denomination or church, and yet... of them said that they believe in a higher power, and even 13% of these people said that they believe in God as described in the Bible, and about half of them actually say that they uh, are spiritual, uh, that spirituality is important to them. Only 29%, Jody, say that there's no such thing as a higher power or spiritual force. Uh, So I think, uh, again, We have a lot of people who are not affiliating with organized religion or the church in any way, and yet uh, they haven't given up uh, belief in God uh, entirely.
1: Uh, This is fascinating information, and uh, so many questions come to my mind that I'd love to dive into with you here. Uh, We've got a spiritually fertile soil, if you will, with these people, because they do have a spiritual foundation. They just They just don't know what to do with it, it sounds to me like. But is it fair to say, and I really want to get into this with you, David, is it fair to say that these people have rejected organized religion um, while at the same time many of these organized religious churches are themselves rejecting biblical truth? They are turning away from biblical truth and embracing secular ideology that is disassociated with biblical truth. Is there, uh, is this not, could this not be an issue where these people are not so much rejecting God, but they're rejecting church and churches that have largely themselves started rejecting biblical truth? I think it's multifaceted,
7: uh, Jody. I think that there are, again, a lot. We, we know that our, our age is getting more secular, so there are less and less people that believe uh, just basic doctrine. Uh, they actually ask in the survey, uh, they gave people a list of options. If you identified as religiously unaffiliated, why are you religiously unaffiliated? Sixty percent said that they rejected basic religious teaching, but 47 percent also said that they they don't like religious organizations. And then another 30% said that they had had a bad experience uh, with religious people. And so I do think there's something to the fact, Jody, that there's a lot of people who become disenchanted uh, with organized religion. They become disenchanted with the church. And I'm not surprised. Uh, let's go back 60 years, Jody. What was the largest denomination in the United States? Well, it was mainline Protestantism, right? Uh, the, ma- the seven mainline denominations. And then we saw from the 50s onward, uh, these mainline denominations get infected with theological liberalism, uh, denying the resurrection, denying that the, the, the Bible is the word of God, denying miracles, denying the virgin birth. And then those uh, denominations quickly shifted on other issues. Uh, first was the ordination of women, then allowing LGBT, redefining marriage, things like that. So quickly, all of those churches had nothing distinctive to offer their people. Uh, One other example I'll give you, Jody, is uh, December 31st, or just a couple of days ago, was the last day for United Methodist Churches to withdraw from that denomination if they wanted to. And in the last four years, and the issue was uh, same-sex marriage, LGBT issues, 7,000 United Methodist Churches withdrew from the denomination over this issue. And so that gets to your point, Jody, that a lot of these churches, and I would assume hundreds of thousands, if not millions of Christians, are, have gotten disillusioned uh, with churches and religious leaders who are clearly abandoning the Bible.
1: Yeah, I think that is an excellent point, and that is precisely the feeling I get when I see this type of information. Uh, is this, it's, a, it's a dual issue. All right, we have these people who are leaving the churches, but at the same time, David, is this not potentially a call for the church to come back to and to stand for truth to return to orthodox teaching.
7: Oh, this is a tremendous opportunity, Jody, for the church to do uh, what the mission of the church is—to uh, to spread the gospel, to teach all that Jesus has commanded. Uh, people are dying, especially for y- younger generations, for authenticity. They're dying for something distinct. Uh, they're they're craving that. They're craving authentic community. Ever since the pandemic, especially uh, the loneliness epidemic in this country is off the charts, Jody. And so, I do think the church has a really unique opportunity. To, to just preach the gospel. Uh, we don't need to dress the gospel up. Uh, we don't need the light show, the rock bands. Uh, I think there, there's something unique about the Christian gospel. And if churches and uh, Christians uh, really push into their communities, I think they would find a lot of people uh, that would be ready uh, to hear the gospel and to respond to it.
1: Yeah, I really think these people are much more ready than perhaps your average person in the church would realize. So let's Land on this final question. Most of these religious nuns say that they were raised in Christianity. So, how do we now, as Christians, best reach these individuals and help them return to a an authentic relationship with the Lord and with believers?
7: Yeah, one, one verse, uh, Jody, Ephesians four fifteen. Uh, Paul says, uh, writing to a group of Christians at the Church of Ephesus, that they speak the truth in love, Uh, especially Gen Z. Younger generations uh, have told us, they've told pollsters they're turned off by uh, perceptions of the church as mean, spirited, as angry. Uh, And so we know the gospel message itself is already offensive. We don't want to be offensive as we teach the gospel, uh, but let's speak the truth in love. And I think as we do that faithfully, Uh, we'll be able to welcome many people back into our church that do have some sort of background.
1: Yeah, these people do have the foundation, and I think it is a right opportunity for the body of Christ to no longer be fearful, but to step out with the gospel and with love and grace and reach these people. Thank you, David Clausen, Director of the Center for Biblical Worldview here at FRC. Great to have you. All right, friends, we are wrapping up another week, another edition here at Washington Watch. Thank you so much for your faithfulness in joining us. Hope you have a fantastic weekend. Keep the torch ablaze, and we'll see you next week right here on Washington Watch.
0: Washington Watch with Tony Perkins is brought to you by Family Research Council and is entirely listener-supported